Quest for Resilience, an exclusive interview with Colonel Jimmy Blackman. Join us for this inspiring and in-depth conversation with one of the most combat experienced leaders of our time, Colonel Jimmy Blackman. His life story is inspiring from leading high-risk military missions around the globe to triumphing over personal struggles. In this exclusive interview, 54-year-old Jimmy opens up about his athletic journey, including running a 2.33 uh, marathon. I did not say that right. You can tell I haven't been in the running world for a while. But he has earned the coveted buckle at the Leadville 100 mountain bike race as well, and making a U.S. Armed Force World Cross Country team. This guy has done so much physically. His dedication to fitness is a testament to his resilience and determination. Moreover, Jimmy courageously shares his battle with PTSD following his years in Iraq and Afghanistan and how it led him to self-medicate with alcohol. He takes us through his darkest moments, his decision to check himself into rehab and his continuous journey of sobriety. This interview is not just about Jimmy's military accomplishments, but also his victories. It's a story of strength, perseverance, and the power of the human spirit. Tune in as we dive into the life of this remarkable individual. Welcome to the Wellness Driven Life Show where you're about to go on a wellness-driven ride. for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I'm excited to tell you a little bit more about our guest today. Jimmy Blackman, a retired Army colonel, is a seasoned leader with 30 years of military service, including six operational deployments in Iraq, Afghanistan, and the Balkans. He played key roles in significant missions and battles, leading to prestigious awards, including the Defense Superior Service Medal, the Legion of Merit, and four Bronze Star medals. Beyond his military accomplishments, Blackman is a respected author of four books and co-author of two albums. He has also excelled in sports, being a three-time archery world champion and a former U.S. Armed Force, Forces World Cross Country Team member. After his active service, he served on the Joint Staff in Washington, D.C., leading strategist tackling complex global issues. Please help me welcome Mr. Jimmy Blackman. Hello. Thanks for having me, April. It's my pleasure and honor, sir, to have you on the Wellness Driven Life Show. I'm so excited to share your story, your journey, all the things that you're doing now because you're just showing up so big and bright in the world. And so let's get started with telling the audience, sharing with them a little bit more about you. Well, I uh, I humbly say that I'm proof that the American dream is still alive. Uh, I grew up the son of a cotton mill worker in northern Georgia. My dad worked the cotton mill his whole life. The most my dad ever made in a single year of his life was $16,200. And um, one day in uh, 1986, uh, Army recruiter showed up and said, son, how would you like to join the Army? All I'd ever debated was which shift I was going to work. I, I was going 
going to the cotton mill. That's just what my people did. And I saw that as a way out. My dad in 1951 and went, did his time, came right back, hung that old Eisenhower jacket in the closet and then went right back to the cotton mill. And so I saw myself, Corporal Blackman, in that uniform. And so I signed up that day. And I'll never forget, he asked me, well, son, would you like to go to college one day? And I literally started laughing. I'm like, my people don't go to college. We can't afford college. And he goes, no, no, no. There's this thing called the Montgomery GI Bill. And Uncle Sam will help pay for your college. And, uh, and I was like, sure, sign me up. Not really thinking that he was serious, honestly. And um, he was. It wound up, I, I was enlisted for almost six years, about five and a half years, and then commissioned as a second lieutenant, of course, during the Cold War, and um, and went off to the Army. And it was literally a way out. And to, to look back now across 30 years from um, certain running a loom in a cotton mill to, to what I've been able to do, again, only in America, it's a pretty, pretty blessed life. Yeah, that is definitely a story. And the the American dream, it's, it is this concept that is possible and few really obtain it and reach it, right? With the stories where you go from the, the rags to riches, so to speak, and rich in so many other ways too, not just monetary. So you have really been on this, this journey. Now you had this extensive military career you want to shed some light a little bit on your experiences with that in that leading others, at least just a tidbit on leading others and what you learned from that experience? Well, I mean, it, it was it's interesting because, as I said, I came in during the Cold War and the, the military was very different. It mirrored business of, of the 80s and 90s, which all organizations were very hierarchical, bureaucratic. Mm -hmm. You know, the leaders made all the decisions, solved all the problems and issued all the orders and everyone else did what they were told. It was an industrial age model that worked very well for its time. And so the first part of my career was within that model. Of course, it got messy. You know, in 89, the wall comes down. We have Desert Storm in 90 and years of of um, stabilization force, uh, you know, peacekeeping missions. We're in Bosnia, Kosovo, and then 9-11 happens. And for, for me, my trajectory in life totally changed because, of course, from 2001 then until my last tour was up in 2015, I spent just making turns Iraq, Afghanistan. And um, yeah, building teams out of uh, sons and daughters of Americans from every town USA, you know, and, and uh, going and doing very hard things with with high consequences. And um, it's something that I, I like to think came natural to me, because I've never been in an organization in which I thought I was the smartest person in it. I was smart enough to surround myself by a lot of people smarter than me. And then my job as a leader, was to create an environment where they would throw their ideas on the table. We would collaboratively be the best version of us that we could be. And so, you know, that's kind of what I do now and as a consultant and executive coach and, uh, and through my speaking is, you know, we're not all equally talented. We don't all have the same potential, but each of us deserve to be the best version of us that we can be. And good leaders help maximize the potential of everyone on the team. Yeah. And I, and I really like how you truly do learn a sense of collaboration and what that is, because team is essentially what you have to have in order to make anything great happen. Absolutely. It's uh, and it, and it's a good balance. I get leaders all the time because I do push a lot of collaboration, innovation, and you've got to create an environment where that can exist in all organizations, whether it's a, you know, one of my Fortune 100 clients or a family business or a military organization. But there are times where the old command and control is necessary, is required, oftentimes in crisis situations or you're up against a timeline. Or it's a balance of understanding when decisions have to be made, when you have time to really get everyone on board, get, gain consensus of everyone on the team, and when you need to, to step up and be very direct and give clear guidance and direction to the team. Yeah, I like that, you know, when you talk about clear decisions have to be made, I think that we really learn how to prioritize what is, you know, immediately important that you have to respond to and what can be put a little bit more on the back burner and be addressed later on. So it gives you this understanding of the tier of what needs to happen 
right now what's priority and what's not? What you just said is the ideal model. <laughs> Unfortunately, uh, uh, a lot of leaders don't uh, clearly prioritize or everything's a priority. So nothing's a priority. And so what priorities are. And then the, the thing that, that again, I see a lot of leaders misstep with is we apply resources to the priorities. We don't spread the peanut butter even. We actually make bets as leaders and we place our resources against our priorities. I'll often ask uh, ask folks that, that I'm coaching to uh, tell me what their business and personal uh, priorities are. Just write down your top three business and your top three personal priorities and then ask them to track their time for two weeks. And they don't match oftentimes, right? Your, your priorities are where you spend your time and money. And you can't you can't argue that uh, wherever you place your resources and the most important resources we have are are usually our capital and our time and where you place that that that's your priorities no matter what you say. What are some of the things? And you're correct, right? Fact is fact. The where we place our time and money. And now, what are some of the things that you would say for people that really need to make a shift in order to make different priorities? Well, I think clearly identifying, um, I, I wouldn't say necessarily different priorities as I think of business leaders, but the resourcing the priorities and clearly stating them um, and then assigning responsibility uh, is is vitally important. Again, a lot of times we use the pronoun people, you know, someone needs to do this, us, them, they, but it, it's not a, you know, April this this is our you know number one business objective and it's yours in your business unit and here are the resources i'm giving you to achieve that and then hold accountable the three biggest things i see businesses the challenges in businesses large and small irregardless of industry the three things they they struggle with is alignment accountability to a, a clear vision and purpose with clearly defined objectives and goals and then holding people accountable to those goals and objectives and and communicating that clearly um, is is usually an Achilles heel of most organizations. Yeah, communication is key on often times, isn't it? Yeah. So I think that it's it's really great that you have gone to where, we have to be in that that self awareness of, of reflection. You said two weeks. Track your time and and see exactly what you're doing. I remember doing that way back in college, <laughs> and having to track our time and what we were doing, and really having an understanding and awareness of what we were doing and where we were putting our time, and being able to kind of tweak it in all of the areas that we could spend less time in and areas that we could spend more time in. So thank you for sharing some of those aspects of yourself. Now you had this great military career and when you came out of it, what was that like for you? So it, that adjustment for me, uh, and I heard you say that in the intro, um, was not as hard. That's not to say it's not hard for a lot of soldiers. Um, you know, many soldiers, they, they're important. They matter. They, they find themselves at the tip of their nation's spear, you know, in, in Afghanistan, Iraq, de deployed abroad, wherever, doing things that are vitally important to national security uh, issues. And um, they're on a team. They have a team. Um, they have responsibility. What they do matters. And then when they separate, they find themselves uh, in some small town, you know, working at Home Depot or whatever. Nothing wrong with that. They just feel like oftentimes, number one, their team is gone. They don't have that support structure. They don't have those responsibilities to look after others and someone checking on them. And they feel like oftentimes they they don't matter anymore. What they do is not important. And so that sense of identity is challenged and it, it often is in behavior that lead to, to problems with, with, you know, on the, the mental side. And um, for me, I had so many things. I've been a very diverse person my whole life. I mean, you mentioned, you know, um, the books, the albums, the, the running, um, 
you know, the cycling, the archery. Um, I, I've always had all these other pursuits that I tried to balance. And so when I left the military, um, if anything, I was able to focus on many of those more and try to tried to then rot out of the gate, figure out how I was going to leverage those things to create, um, you know, a, a business where I worked for the greatest boss in the world myself. <laughs> I did not want to work uh, in the defense industry, frankly. I didn't want to go work for um, the same guy that I worked for in the military wearing a suit now. Uh, and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. It just wasn't me. Yeah. Uh, destiny. And so I bet on Jimmy Blackman and that really helped me transition. I think. I, I like how you say that. I bet on Jimmy Blackman, you know, really putting everything into your own hands. Entrepreneurship is a definitely a journey that is not for the faint heart. You are now accountable to yourself in a lot of regards. And when you first in you know, vision, what that is going to look like. It looks totally different than when you're in it. And it's, it's a lot more challenging than you think. But uh, I do like that you say that, that you bet on yourself. And I think that's a very powerful statement. Yeah. It, it, I look back now and I get asked this all the time, but you know, did, did you plan it this way? Could you have foreseen? And absolutely not. Uh, you know, I, I seized opportunities as they came. I, I had a plan. I had written my book, Pale Horse, um, right as I was retiring, and it, it was a bestseller. It, it opened tons of doors. I happened to be a good storyteller. So speaking came natural to me and and enjoyed it. I mean, I had a great time. I still love speaking. Um, but that that's what I was doing full time. That meant I lived in Marriott's and American Airlines. <laughs> but um, it, it's it's a not for the faint of heart. I, I was actually probably more disruptive to my family as a speaker than in the military. In the military, I'd leave for a year. I'll see you in a year. You know, I'm in and out, in and out, in and out all the time, disruptive uh, to their lives uh, as a speaker. But anyway, um, you know, that led to folks asking me to stand up a leadership academy and help train their middle management and, and C-suite executives. And so I, I did that for a while. Had some guys come through that said, hey, we with lifelong consultants. We built a consulting firm. Um, we'd like to, to partner with you. I wound up being a managing partner in a consulting firm for um, for several years. And, um, you know, just uh, as opportunities came. I, I was open to be in a position where I could seize those opportunities. And certainly there were opportunities I passed up that, you know, would have taken me in a different direction. But I think you have to keep the lens. Um, and, you know, some of those things don't work out or they work out for a period. I can't say that I or I can say after each of those things that I did take a chance on and go down at the end, I look back and realize I learned a tremendous amount. Yeah. Uh, I gained a lot from every experience and I networked like crazy. I met a lot of amazing people that lead businesses that led to other opportunities um, and so on. So there's no way I could have mapped it out, but I think people who go down that, that road can't think, it's it's the industrial age model way of thinking. You know, I need a blueprint for my life. The only constant today is change. And it's not just change. It's a problem. It's the pace of change, the rate of change, constant mm -hmm. disruption. And it's no different in, in business than it is in our personal lives. Um, we have to be very agile and flexible and able to navigate an ever changing environment. That's just the tune we're dancing to these days. Yeah, absolutely. And I have a question. I mean, you know, talking about navigating change, was networking and, and putting yourself out there to speak with others, is that something that really came naturally to you always? Or was that something that you had to learn to navigate? I've always, you know, I get a lot of energy from people. Uh, I'm more introverted, I think, now as I've gotten older than when I was younger. Um, I've always been a people person. Um, but it's interesting. Sometimes I have a I have a harder time in the beginning, like getting it going, that conversation. Once it's going, I, I'll talk all night. And, and I, you know, I do people well. Um, and so, I think it came natural once I had those opportunities, you know, a good introduction, 
cold introductions on my own at a, you know, a, a networking event, I'm uncomfortable. I don't really like just walking up to someone. Hi, I'm Jimmy. And here's what I do. And what, you know, what are you doing? I don't do that well, but you introduced me to your friend and they're the CEO of this company or the COO of that company, whatever. And boom. Yeah, that definitely is a, a much softer introduction, isn't it? Where we feel more like we can come into a, and meet somebody new. Yeah, I, I'll give you an example. I, I would be the person who, if we're at, and I went to one of these in Nashville early on, within a year of retiring. And um, there's probably 75 people there. And I get introduced to someone, I start up a conversation and I'm really comfortable with it. We talk for a few minutes. I'll stay there and talk to that person the entire hour and a half that we're having this event. Whereas others would talk to you, exchange business cards, contact information, get that warmth there. And then they're going to break away from you because there's, there's 70 other people in the room and they're going to hit them. Yeah. They're going to hit, you know, 25% of the room. I'm not that person. I'm, I'm, I no, no, I'm really comfortable with you. Just stay and talk to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you establish a solid relationship with somebody. It's more personal, you know, when we spend more time with somebody, but I get that too, where you, especially in the networking world, you want to branch yeah. out and meet more people and utilize that time more wisely possibly. And, you know, it's an interesting area to be putting yourself out there and to be learning and meeting new people and learning how that works. Because I think that there's definitely a science behind it and really where people want to hear about themselves. So asking a lot of questions about them, finding those key things that you're able to relate with, and then building that rapport. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I've met very few people that don't honestly like to talk about themselves. And so it comes down to being the person that just, I mean, it's easy if you just, there's a couple of easy questions asking about them, their family, their their profession and get them talking. And then it, 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 after you get through the first couple of questions, it's really easy. It's just putting that out there. She does this for a living. She just brings people together. She is a network builder. And so she has these events and she has these little icebreaker things like you'll do a little scavenger hunt or whatever. And she just forces people to be together. But it's all business people throughout the Salt Lake City Valley. And I flew out to do one of these. It's amazing. I mean, you meet all these people and you spend, you know, three or four hours with them and you walk away with great connections. It's it's uh, there's an art to it. It, but some people, some people do it really well. And as you said, they capitalize on those opportunities. Yeah. Well, I, I'd like to bring that up, Jimmy, because I think that whether it's in business or personal, I think it is a skill that we all need to know because each other community, having other people around us is so important for our overall well-being. Yeah. Uh, Isolation is not a good thing. Um, and that's, um, and I know you want to talk about this a little bit later, but uh, uh, that that's on themselves, uh, you know, that other people can't relate to what I've been through, the things I've done, um, the PTSD side, all of that. And, and they, and I, I'll admit I was one, I, I wanted to be alone a lot for a long time. And that's just not a good place to be. Um, it, you know, it's, yeah. You you can go to some some dark places if you spend too much time isolated and away from people. And so the relationships are vitally important. And, and you know, it's no true, no different in, in business as well. I tell people all the time I was in I was in Silicon Valley with a bunch of techies. And and, you know, I took great pride in telling them I don't care how technologically advanced we become. Life isn't always will be about people and relationships. Yeah. And, you know. COVID took us away and it stuck us on, on these things all the time. And this is different. 
than if you and I were sitting together or if I'm speaking here. The events, you know, sales conferences, things like that. It isn't just the content that's being presented in the professional sessions. It's the cocktail hour. It's the golf scramble. Those meaningful uh, contact. And that's just not done virtually. So it's a challenge. It can be. Yes. Well, thank you for sharing that. And we're going to move into our our commercial here. And when we get back, let's let's jump a little bit more into that and what that's like to to be alone, want to desire to be alone when we've had some things happen in life. And I think that there it's a very natural response. But when is there the point where you have this wake up call where you said, okay, this is when I need to bring in more people to surround me with. So stay tuned. Hey, it's Jim Morris, founder of Impact Events. This is a six month program that we're kicking off with a massive one day conference. Have you ever been to a one day, two day, three day conference and then left with a ton of momentum and excitement and then found yourself deflated? almost two weeks later, spent a lot of money on that conference, and you just wish you had an opportunity to potentially ask a speaker that follow-up question that would allow you to break those barriers in your business. I've been there a million times, spent a lot of money, and that's how this event is different. We're going to bring you back so you can ask additional questions to break down those barriers that you face in your business. So if you're ready to take action, invest in yourself, and change the trajectory of your life and your business, click the button below and grab your ticket before they run out. Our lives were never the same after we learned our 21-year-old daughter, Kristen, was murdered by her ex-boyfriend. It's a parent's worst nightmare. How much did we really know about domestic violence back then? Clearly not enough. Now we know plenty. We know domestic violence, or DV, can happen to anyone. One in three women suffer physical violence at the hands of intimate partners during their lifetimes. One in three. I'm Bill Mitchell, host of the When Dating Hurts podcast. And my interviews with DV counselors, law enforcement, and especially actual DV survivors give the pandemic of domestic violence the attention it deserves. The When Dating Hurts podcast. It's a series of lives being saved. All right, back to us. And Jimmy, I would say that, you know, most of us who have had some major trauma-like experiences in life will go down that dark hole. So you have been there, you have done that, what was that experience like for you? Um, well, you know, I learned a lot about myself, I guess. I uh, so when I first noticed it, and I'm sure there were, you know, there were there were things I didn't notice leading up to this. It was on my second deployment to Iraq. Um, I explain here, but uh, some of my guys got blown up, and I mean, blown up. And uh, that night. Um, I had a dream that as soon as I went to sleep, I dreamt that my daughter, me, my son and daughter and some strange man were driving along a reservoir. My son was behind me. He was eight. My daughter was behind the strange man in the back seat. He, she was five. And uh, we're driving by a reservoir. There's a rail to our right and a mountain that goes up to the left and the big reservoir flowing. And then like a waterfall uh, that goes off a couple of hundred feet drop. As soon as I took all of that in, the guy went through the um, the little guardrail and off into the reservoir and the car starts to sink. So frantically, I get out of the car, go to the back, I grab my son and I start swimming towards shore as fast as I can. And uh, of course, the anxiety is building. I feel it in my dream. I get over there and I push him toward the shore and I turn around to go back and I, I look for the car and it's gone. It's sunk. So I start swimming out to where the car body's building, like it's getting 
like I'm going to implode this, just this anxiety that was just so strong. And I yeah. swim back to where the car was and I start looking, I can't find her. I dive and dive. I can't find the car. I can't find my daughter. And finally I just stopped and I'm looking in the water and I saw her floating with the current, just, just moving with the current on the surface. Her hands were apart and her legs kind of spread. And I remember her eyes were closed. Her mouth was just barely open. She had an air bubble on her lip. I could see it as clear as it was yesterday. And she's just floating. So I start trying to dive to get to her, to pull her out, but I can't quite reach her. All this time we are floating with the current, moving with the current toward this waterfall. And of course the anxiety is just continuing to build. I feel like I'm just going to blow up and I'm diving, 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 diving. Boom. We go over the waterfall. I wake up, my heart rate's like 200 beats per minute. I'm soaking wet and sweat the whole deal. So I don't yeah. sleep the rest of the night. Well, the next night I have the same dream again. And the next night and the next night. And oh. after about a week, I mean, I'm a zombie. I haven't in, in the 101st Airborne Division, a good friend of mine, Ron Thomas was his name. And and Ron had set up a driving range. He said, people won't sit in my office and, and open up, but they'll hit golf balls and tell me everything. And so uh, I walked by his desk one day and I said, Ron, we need to hit golf balls. Yeah. And uh, we went out and I told him. And he said, it's natural. He said, you're, you know, you, this, this event with your soldiers triggered this thing. It's probably been building with all these other times you've been blown up, shot at and everything else, but you, you feel in control here. Now, bad things could happen, but where you're most vulnerable is at home. Anything could happen to your family. There's nothing you can do about it. So you're totally vulnerable. So the stress goes there. Um, well that, that made sense to me, but it didn't stop the dreams. And so, uh, for the rest of that year, I lived on uh, Ambien, which doesn't stop the dreaming either, but, but, uh, I'd get a few hours of sleep and I made it through that year. I had that dream almost every night for a year. Wow. Um, got back home and got back home and I would have it on and off. And then I started having other dreams. I would be, I would relive battles, but I would be like, I couldn't find my boots. I'm barefooted in the middle of a battle or I couldn't find my weapon or I get left. The helicopters would pick everybody up and fly away. And I'm left stranded, isolated. Right. And it just kept coming. And, and then I started having anxiety attacks. Um, I was a deer hunt. So I was, I was in a 20 foot up in a tree in a deer stand at 10 o'clock in the morning and had an anxiety attack that scared me to death. I thought I need to get out of this tree, but I thought if I try to climb down, I'm going to fall out. And I was stuck in this tree, just having a, this insane anxiety attack. And so these things just kept coming. And at the time I was working in the Pentagon, I was read on to all of these, these classified highly, you know, like our classified, classified programs. And, um, and so I finally went into the doc and I was like, look, I, I something's got to give, like, I, I need some help. Is there, and I, and I asked him, I said, is there, is there anything you can give me to take the edge off? That'll just, I mean, I, I, I need to just take the edge off. And he looked at me and said, in your position with all the programs you read on, thing and you stay in your job. So to do your job, no. And I just kind of flippantly said to him, well, what am I supposed to do? Drink a fifth of whiskey every day? And he just kind of looked at me and he said, kind of has the same effect. And as, uh, yeah. And on my podcast, Better with Jimmy Blackman, I had Dr. Shauna Springer, a Harvard uh, psychiatrist on, and she said, she called that the kiss of death. Uh, That's what he gave me, the kiss of death. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it started that day. It did. I and, and it worked. You know, I, yeah. I would uh, I commute an hour and a half home in Washington D.C. every day, and I get out. I I get in my truck, parked in the parking lot. I go straight to the store, and I get something to drink, and I drink it on the way home, and yeah. I take the edge off. And so for a while, you know, it was it was not every day. It was just you know when I'd feel I needed to take the edge off, but it be, it increased in frequency over time. And um, then I retired. I moved back here and I was okay for probably a year. I'd have, you know, every now and then, but not, not a lot. Dreams returned of missing my boots, my weapons, all that, and these anxiety again. And I started, I started doing it more and more. 
And it increased in frequency enough to I remember one day I felt like I was having this anxiety building up and I thought I need a drink and I stopped myself and I just asked myself, am I really having an anxiety attack and need a drink or do I need an excuse to justify drinking? Right. And I couldn't answer the question. And so I, when I went to my doc the next time, I, I asked them that question. And he looked at me and said, you know, I can't answer that. You can't answer that question. And uh, I just, you know, I was like, well, what are you going to do? And I was hiding this from everyone. I've told no one anything. I was a, a functioning alcoholic relatively quickly. And, and I just hid it. Um, from my family, everything. And I, I got really good at it. And you drink enough, you can you can function and hide it pretty well. Um, it increased, increased. And, um, we got home and I was in the worst shape of my life. I was broken. I needed a, I needed a knee surgery, another surgery. I gained weight. I'd been a incredible athlete my entire life. You, you said, you know, a 233 marathon, I made a U.S. world team. Uh, I was a great cyclist. Uh, and, um, and I, all of that had gone as I lived on the road and I was drinking like crazy. My diet was crap. And I remember one morning I, I went to the sink to brush my teeth. I'm standing there in my underwear looking at myself and I was just disgusted at what I saw. And I was like, what have I done? Like mm -hmm. I hated what I saw. And so I said, well, it's COVID. I'm, I'm going to fix this. And, um, and so I started really hitting the cycling and, so just a long story short, you know, I rode from March of 2020 to the end of that year, 9,300 miles, um, 2021, another 9,400, I think. And then 2022, 10,500. So I began losing weight, getting back in shape, but I'm still drinking hmm. four or five hours a day so I can handle the calories. And I went from 206 pounds down to 175. And, um, and then, uh, finally the drinking had gotten to the point. I mean, you, you said I did the Leadville 100 mountain bike race, the world's toughest mountain bike race that, you know, starts at 10,200 feet in Leadville, Colorado, climbs to 12,600 feet. It's 105 miles and climbs over 14,000 feet of elevation. I drank six of those high gravity, 8% pints the night before the race. I, I mean, I, I would go ride and, I'd ride five or six hours and average 23, 24 miles an hour in a group ride. And the last hour of the ride, all I was thinking was as soon as I stop, where am I going to get a drink? Where am I going to go get a drink? Sometimes I'd have it hidden in my truck. And before I would even get my bike clothes off, I'd already popped the top and I was drinking. Yeah. Started drinking bourbon for breakfast, 530 in the morning. And so finally I got to the point that I realized um, my physical, my lab started, And I realized I lived in a haze all the time and I, I needed it really bad. And so I decided I'd quit cold turkey. I tried and cold turkey didn't work. I, um, my, my blood pressure went to 170 over 145. I broke out in a cold sweat, just soaking wet and total body tremors, just shaking. Yeah. I called my brother-in-law, who's a physician. He said, you need to have a drink right now. You may go into a seizure if you don't. And if you return to normal with a drink, you know you're addicted. I went and got a couple of drinks and boom, steady as I could be. Blood pressure back to 120 over 60. That's fine. And um, that scared me. I knew that I, I needed help. I couldn't do it alone. And he told me that. He's like, you can kill yourself trying to quit at this point. You've got to mm. get help. I, I had gotten to a point I realized I really needed it. Um, I needed to get help, but I still was hiding it and, and didn't want to tell anyone or talk to anyone about it. And um, finally just said to myself, either you're going to kill yourself or you're going to get help because you're going to drink yourself to death pretty quick if you don't. So the, the rehab, um, my wife was in Montana. I was at home alone. About 10 o'clock that night, I was wanting a drink. And I knew I was going into rehab the next day. And I remember looking at all my hiding places. I was out. I couldn't find any alcohol. And I stopped and I was like, how much have I drank today? 
I did an inventory of what I drank. That day, I had drank a fifth of whiskey, two full bottles of wine, and eight of those pint 8% beers in one day. And I was still wow. looking for more and still functional. That would kill most people. But that's how much I, I drank for so long. And the next morning, I went to rehab, and uh, I've never had a drink since. So I like to say, people ask, how do you achieve these things? You know, world-class uh, runner or a cyclist or archery world champion, all these things, you know, and I say, I'm, I'm very committed. Like I'm either all in or I'm not in at all. I'm going to be the best I can be, or I'm not doing it. I drank the same way. It's mm. my personality. It's who yeah. I am. Yeah. I, I, I understand that definitely. And thank you. You are an excellent storyteller, as you said. I, I think that was fantastic how you told the story. And thank you so much for sharing all of that. Uh, you know, the the vulnerability attached to it, the the honesty attached to it, the authenticity was really, really wonderful. And I, I found myself relating to some things with that too. And it's interesting, you know, alcoholism, how it can come about for people when it wasn't intentional to begin with it. You know, we, you didn't pick it up intentionally for a, a certain purpose, but you were, you just wanted some sort of relief. And I can relate with that, not on uh, an anxiety or trauma level, but for on a health standpoint where I just wanted some sort of relief from the, the physical pain that I was experiencing. And I didn't want the drugs because the drugs had all the side effects. And I was like, what is there? And so looking it up, what's some more, uh, you know, old fashioned ways of pain relief and whiskey came up. So, and then it works, right? So then it's easy to fall into this trap of where you continue to drink more and more and more. So thank you so much for sharing that. That's an incredible journey. And I think that it's very powerful also to share that if, if, you're, if you get to that point where you're consuming so much alcohol, that it is actually dangerous to try to stop cold turkey. You know, and having that understanding and awareness for, you know, I don't know if any of our listeners would be at that point or know somebody that would, but you want to handle it a little more delicately like you did. Well, there are, uh, uh, there are plenty of people that, that are living the life that I was living. And I, I flew red off lights with them in, in first class all the time, drinking bloody Mary's at five thirty, six o'clock in the morning on the flight, you know, starting their day with yeah. a drink and you can look at it and see it in their faces. I would also speak and I'm, I have been open and I'll, I'll go back to that in a second, but I'd speak and then go to their event that night at some conference or industry event. And, and they come up to me and they tell me, you know, Jimmy, I used to be an athlete. Now I'm 40 pounds. And they're, they, they live that cycle on the road all the time. And, and it's just, you know, they drink themselves to sleep every night. It is incredibly common. Very, very yeah. common. Um, but, but the openness and transparency, you know, I, yeah, I could, it was humbling. And at first it was, it was hard to just, but, but once I just did, it, I'm like, I either just go and tell everything or don't tell anything. And so I, I, I felt that I, I was compelled to do so because number one, soldiers needed to hear senior officers explain that they mm. suffer from the same problems they do. We're human. Absolutely. You know, PTSD doesn't know what your rank, your socioeconomic background or your education is. Uh, PTSD knows you're a human being. <laughs> That's all. Yeah. And so you know, a lot of soldiers, you know, would feel like, you know, they look at officers. I know this because I was a soldier before I was an officer, but they look at it, their life's perfect. They got everything together. They got the perfect family. They make good money. They drive a nice car. Yeah, bull crap. Right. <laughs> you know, I mean, they got yeah. the same problems everybody else does. And some, some more senior people needed to speak up. And so I wanted to, to just be open and share with people as much as I could. Yeah, absolutely. I think it definitely gives people that space to to feel like they can be open themselves with their own stories and their own journeys in life. 
And yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, you talk about PTSD, it doesn't, it doesn't choose anyone. And I think that also people feel like they are not strong enough. Like they're having these horrible experiences, these nightmares and this anxiety that is taking place on a physiological level, but it's not because they're not strong enough. It just happens to everybody uh, because we're, we're, we're not designed to take such traumatic events so continuously and, uh, you know, where it's, it's just that war is hard, you know, war is, war is not natural, <laughs> we, we, you know, so, um, the response of the body is, it is going into a natural state where you do respond with the trauma and the anxiety and the worry and the fear for your family and all of that. Yeah, if war doesn't affect you, you've got other things to worry about. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> you've got <absolutely>. other issues. <laughs> you, you do have other issues. So awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that. So what I would love to talk about now, let's what is the bright side of all of this? Because now you have you, you you've you've gone through so much of the ups and the downs of life. And so how do you show up now? What is life like now? Well, number one, a, a, a clear conscience is a soft pillow, not, not hiding, not lying, mm. not trying to deceive is, is so liberating, you know? Um, and so, you know, not, not waking up and thinking, golly, is there someone I need to go make an apology to? What did I say? Uh, you know, how, how far did I go with that? Um, and not knowing the fear of not knowing, you know, if you offended someone or not, um, it's a good feeling to not have to worry about that anymore. Um, and then, you know, health wise, man, I, I'm, I'll be 55 in November and I'm crazy fit. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I, I cycle, I lift weights. Um, I can't run anymore. My body just isn't cooperating my knee, but, um, I got my body, my body fat below 10% for the first time in many, many years. And, um, I feel good. You know, I sleep good. I, I rest well. I'm able to do things 10, 12 years. And, and, you know, that did require some surgeries. I've had seven surgeries since 9-11, but, um, but I'm able to now not get up and skip a workout because, you know, I drank too much or yeah. not, you know, constantly worry, you know, just anxiety about the decisions I'm making and, you know, what I'm hiding and just, and a, a clear conscience is valuable. <laughs> it really is. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So you have a podcast as well. So that is wonderful. Hello, fellow podcaster. And I, I would love to know what is that like for you? What are some of the guests that you have on? And what are what is some of the most profound stories that you have heard from the guests that you have on your show? Well, it's better with Jimmy Blackman. And it's, it's this idea of just being the best version of you that you can be. And um, so uh, I mean, we've had Dean Carnazis, the ultra runner, you know, who ran 50 marathons in 50 states in 50 days. He's won the bad water, all that. Um, uh, had Clay Hayes, who won the show alone, season eight. And, um, you know, people who have just done uh, or, ordinary people who've done extraordinary things. And, and the idea is not to, you know, not to be starstruck by some guests that everybody looks at and says, well, they're just gifted, they're a prodigy or whatever. People who had a, 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 a tremendous work ethic, Sage Norton, a female military officer who is just an incredibly tenacious athlete and, and um, you know, never made an Olympic trials team or, or Olympic team or Olympic trials, but um, has done multiple ultras. She won the JFK 50K ultra race and uh, she's a, a cross country and track coach for girls, um, 
at high school now and just an amazing woman who, mm-hmm. who, who really is about being the best version of her. Liam Collins, a four, former Delta Force operator who won best ranger competition at 36 years old. He's been uh, in the top five um, three times at the best ranger competition. And wh- that last time he was 40 years old, which is just unbelievable. But, you know, what makes them able to do to do? and achieve such a high level it comes down to commitment and yeah. and that it's just a commitment to yourself not someone else to to look in the mirror kind of like i did in march of 2020 and say i don't like what i see and i want to do something about it and i'm willing to um, that commitment is usually what's lacking. You know, we make New Year's resolutions and very few people make it past the last day of February. They're mm-hmm. just not committed. And so um, it's about trying to inspire people to, to be a better version of themselves. Yeah, I love that. I, I, I think it's fantastic that uh, people such as yourself are really pushing out incredible stories and content into the world. And speaking of, I want to share before our time is up here today, a few of the photos that you have <laughs> submitted, because I think that it, it's it's really nice to be able to have that visual testimony of where you have been. And so we have a lot of photos, so I'm not going to show all of them. I'm Well, I'm, I am going to show them all. I'm going to go through them quickly. But I'd love for you to just kind of highlight a little bit about some of these photos that you have. Now, now these are you on, on your physical journey and how you have really honed in on that. Yeah, so uh, this is at the Leadville 100. There's the finish line. Uh, that was that, that. That is the look of exhaustion and relief that it is over. Ten hours and 35 minutes. So you got to be sub 12 hours to get the buckle. Um, and so I, I went and earned my buckle. I'm not a mountain bike guy. So uh, this is uh, just a road bike. I, I spend most of my time. I live just outside of Nashville. So most of the time I'm racing uh, road bikes. Uh, so that's mm. this. Uh, this is actually a photo shoot we're doing for some social media stuff. Um, this well, is a gravel there's, bike. There's that physical physique that you have. You know, you you strived for this, Jimmy. You know, you really you saw in the mirror back in 2020. Uh, what the heck is this? What am I doing to myself? And you have totally transformed that. Yeah, I uh, I am proud of that. Justifiably proud, I think. Not hubris, but. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I have a picture uh, and it's on the Internet. It's on my social media of uh, me in 2020. And it's it's hard to look at for me. Um, I mean, it's just it's the worst shape I've ever been in in my life in 54 mm. years. And and. And below 10 percent body fat and no, I know what it took to get there. And, yeah. you know, it, it's it's consistency as well. You know, I, I do watch my diet. I get a ton of protein in, but, but I still, you know, I still eat a piece of cake and a brownie and it, that's okay. Every now and then. it's when you do that every day right. or you're not burning those calories. And so some people think you have to go just fanatical with it. You don't, if you consistently work out, just make it a part. I say this all the time to people. I, uh, you know, I made a decision a long time ago that every day of my life, I'm going to brush my teeth. Now, I don't get up every day and I'll ask you, April, do you get up and say, you know, i got to make a decision. Am I going to brush my teeth today or not? Have you ever even thought about that? No, it's just automatic. Just do it. So <laughs> I just said, I'm going to do that with exercise. I'm going to make a decision today that I never have to make that decision again. Sometimes that means I get up at 430 in a Marriott and I go downstairs and I work with what equipment they have, but I get I get that workout in, right? I get something done. I can always do something, even if it's a, if it's in your hotel room or when I'm hunting outside. And I just committed that every day I'm gonna do it. It's gonna be a part of my life from now on. Yeah, this photo is so cool, by the way. I love this photo. Yeah, that's me hurting myself running again. <laughs> <laughs> no longer doing that. Well, you know, I, I just want to say it's so inspiring, especially for other men, you know, to this, the message of it, you can start anytime yeah. with, you know, if you want to have a different life, if you want to live your life differently for the remaining of it, 
you can change things at any time. And at 55 years old, you know, you are doing just that. So it's very inspiring. Well, I appreciate it. This is, uh, this is the archery. I, I don't shoot competitively as much anymore just because, uh, you can, uh, I only have so much time and I do like to eat. So I have to, uh, I have to earn a living, but, uh, <laughs> I, I grew up shooting. My dad was a competitive shooter and, uh, this is the, uh, international bow hunting organization, uh, world champion buckle. Yeah, it's beautiful. And then the books, this is uh, 2009. That's that year in, in Afghanistan where um, the, the battles in which uh, five congressional medals of honor were earned in the battles that are discussed in that book. I was task force commander there of seventh squadron. Still uh, was, was kind enough to write the forward uh, for me on that. This yeah. was uh, the bestseller. I like that. And this is the invasion of Iraq that first year. Uh, 2nd Squadron, 17th Cavalry Regiment, uh, Cowboys over Iraq. Uh, you know, none of us had been to war before. We were making it up as we went. There's a lot of humor in this. There's a lot of serious stuff, but there's a lot of, you know, fighting camel spiders in a bucket and, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, just uh, raiding the Kufa Cola plant, which was the, the Iraqi knockoff of Coca-Cola. They had a Kufa Cola. <laughs> they stole the recipe, I guess, and had their own Coke. So, you know, when you haven't had anything but water and meals ready to eat MREs for several months, a Kufa Cola is pretty good. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, I appreciate the humor. I think I really love the artwork of the books as well, Jimmy, but the incorporating humor in things that are a little more challenging or uncomfortable is definitely one of those things that you obtain uh, when you when you are in those positions, or at least you, you hopefully should, because it's one of those things that we need to utilize in order to make sense of or just to get through the awfulness that you experience. Yeah. This is uh, just a book signing up in New York City. And, and this then is, this is uh, the, yeah. Yeah, this is Ranger School. There's, you know, uh, there, there's there's more Navy SEAL uh, literature out there than, than you can uh, shake a stick at, but very little Army Ranger. So uh, I wrote a book called Ranger School, which is the blow-by-blow, day-by-day of me going through uh, Army Ranger School. I have somewhat of a photographic memory for events. Uh, I can see, like, I can see my first grade class and where everybody once sat in their desk. Wow. <laughs> so uh, I, I remembered Ranger School pretty vividly. And uh, so this is... Uh, uh, written, you know, in narrative form, but a lot, there's dialogue here. You're in the conversation, the things that went on, um, obviously did a lot of interviews, but, um, but this takes you through us army ranger school, uh, day by day in my, my class, again, a lot of really funny stuff, but a lot of really, really hard, um, challenging events as well. I went through in the winter of 1992 and 93. So November to January, 92 into 93. I think what's nice about what you um, and some others are offering to people is it, it gives young, young people who are entering into military something to, you know, fill themselves up with things to expect stories to hear. And I, I think that it's very powerful for those who could utilize it. Yeah. And this is you speaking. Yeah, this was in Orlando, I think. Pool Corp. So uh, I enjoy this. It's like uh, the audience. Yeah, there were a couple thousand folks there. Um, but uh, I, yeah, I like the big stage. It's a one act play. I uh, I get a lot of energy from this. But then I love. I always usually do a book signing afterwards, and um, you know that's the fun part where everybody comes up and says, "I know." I know it's a, a long shot, but do you know Bobby from Des Moines? <laughs> no, I don't, but, yeah, but it's yeah. fun talking to them and people come and tell me stories of their family members that have been in. And it's just, I enjoy that uh, immensely. Yeah. The relations that's yeah, that is cool. Now, speaking of relations. Yeah. That, that one's 32 years long. So, uh, yep. Yeah, that's my Aww. wife who, uh, the 
highest heroes of 20 years of war. Um, my wow. wife told me as I was going to Iraq the second time, Jimmy, there's a difference in leaving and being left. Mm. And um, they, they have their own challenges back home trying to, you know, I had four kids and dad left, left for a year at a time. Yeah. Well, beautiful couple, beautiful couple. My daughter's wedding just in August, my second daughter. Uh, so Congratulations. that's my right. Yeah. I'm a grandpa. I'm an old man, uh, <laughs> but that's all but one son. The son that's not there is in Germany. He's in the army. Awesome. Specialist Blackman. Well, thank you so much for sharing those photos. I, I love when our guest shares more of that personal side to themselves. So that's really cool. Jimmy, it has been so awesome to have you on the show. Is there anything else that you want to share with our audience today? You know, as a, as a parting shot, I kind of hinted at it a couple of times, but I would just challenge anyone within the reach of my voice, you know, uh, do the test I did. Get in your underwear and stand in your bathroom and look at yourself and just ask, am I the me I want to be? Am I content yeah. with who I am? And if the answer to that's no, then then do something about yeah. you. Yeah, absolutely. And that that self-reflection can be can be very difficult in the beginning, you know, where we really do spend that moment with ourselves and ask, is this what I want to see? So thank you so much for sharing yourself and your story. I want to make sure that everyone knows where to find you. I have it here on the screen and also it is going to be in the description below. So everyone can find out more about Jimmy Blackman at www.jimmyfblackman.com. And again, that's in the description. So I want to thank you again, sir, for sharing yourself and your journey on the Wellness Driven Life Show. It's been an honor and a privilege. So thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me, April. You're welcome. And goodbye for now, everyone. And we will see you later.